Good afternoon, everyone. Who is Jesus Christ? Have you ever really stopped to think about that question or the answer to that question? Who is Jesus Christ? How well do you personally know Jesus Christ? Many people believe that they know Jesus Christ and they have various concepts of Jesus Christ, but the fact is that the concepts that many people have of Jesus Christ, who he is, his character, his personality, other facets of the person that Jesus Christ is, are their people's ideas are simply wrong. We call ourselves Christians, and the word Christian implies that we are a follower of Jesus Christ. And we are told in the Bible that if we are Christians, that we have entered into a very intimate relationship with Christ, about as intimate a relationship as can exist between two people. And notice in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 30, Ephesians 5 verse 30, Paul wrote, For we are members of his body, speaking of Christ, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So our relationship with Jesus Christ is to be so intimate that it could be expressed in these words that we are members of his body in a, in a sense, of his flesh and of his bones. And Paul, Paul is drawing the parallel here between the intimacy of a married couple, a husband and wife, and the church and Jesus Christ. And of course, we are members of the church. If we have been converted and received the Holy Spirit, we have become members of the church of God, which is the body of Christ, as it is referred to in Scripture. The church is referred to as the body of Christ. We are members of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So Paul says that it is a mystery, it is knowledge, which is not necessarily commonly known, but it is knowledge which can be acquired, the fact that Jesus Christ and his church are one, one body, one flesh, so to speak. That is, that is the intimate nature of the relationship between them. Of course, it's figurative, but it nevertheless expresses an intimacy that should exist between Christ and his people. That is the essence of the spiritual union with Jesus Christ that should exist between him and those who are part of his church. Now, when we are brought into the kingdom of God fully, when we are born in, in the resurrection, so to speak, into the family of God, we're told that we will be like Christ. And we are to be in the process now of becoming like Christ. Even though when we are resurrected, we will have presumably our own individual personalities, but we will in many ways be like Christ. We will have the same approach to life, the same philosophy of life, you might say, the same values, the same mind, so to speak, that characterizes that of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, we will be one with him. We will be of the same mind, that is. Now, human beings have a tendency to 
pick out someone to emulate, someone to imitate, someone that they admire, that they would like to be like. And quite often this is true among young people who may, in a sense, idolize someone. Quite often it might be a a music figure who, or a, a movie star or some sports figure. And this desire to emulate someone is often so emphatically expressed that they are referred to as idols. People idolize certain individuals. And it's not true just of young people. It can be just as true of older people. The truth is that all of us really someone need someone to look up to. We need an example. We need someone that we can emulate, someone that can provide leadership and support in developing a set of ideals and values, in setting an example for us of a mode of conduct and behavior that we can imitate. We need someone to identify with and someone to emulate. And unfortunately, the kind of people that are often emulated or imitated are not really the kind of people that are fit to be emulated or fit to be examples for others to follow. Certainly they're not fit to be idolized or worshipped in any way. But what if everyone on the face of the earth sought to emulate Jesus Christ, to follow his example, to be like him. Think about what a different world it would be if everyone were really and truly seeking to emulate, to follow the example, to be like Jesus Christ. And we might even think about ourselves, how different would our lives be if we were really intent on emulating and following Jesus Christ's example perfectly more so than what we are. Notice in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, Paul wrote, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. We're told here that we are to be imitators of God as dear children. We are supposed to be imitating God, which means imitating Jesus Christ. And the very term disciple, as we've discussed before, as it originally, uh, the, the term in the Greek, methetes, actually implies that the person who is the teacher is not only one who is teaching, but is one who is imitated, whose example is followed. And there are a number of scriptures in the Bible that tell us explicitly that we are to follow Christ's example, that we're to follow in his footsteps. But if everyone in the world would actually drive to imitate Jesus Christ, it would be a completely different world. Jesus Christ is a person of sterling character. He exemplifies a unique philosophy. If Jesus Christ were here today in the flesh, if he were here on the earth in the flesh today, in today's society, with its prevailing philosophies and its system of values, he would be a very unusual, a very out-of-the-ordinary person. He would not just be fitting in with the value system and the ideals of the world that we live in. There would be a stark contrast between Jesus Christ and his approach to things as opposed to the usual approach among human beings. And even though he may look pretty much like everyone else, his approach to life, his system of values, his philosophy would be light years removed from those which prevail in this world. He would be expressing and exhibiting a philosophy based on the concept of godly love, 
on outgoing concern on a way of life which would lead to joy, to peace, to happiness, to fulfillment, such as most people never approach, much less fully experience in this, in this world, in this life. People have their ideas about Jesus Christ and what he's like. Many people think that they know Christ, but the Christ that they know, the Christ that they think they know, is really not very much at all like the real Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is not here in the flesh today. We can't walk up to Jesus Christ and see him and sit down and talk to him or or be taught by him directly, face to face. So where, where would we go to find out about Jesus Christ? Who can tell us what Jesus Christ is like? We're supposed to be like him, but how can we become like him if we don't know what he's like? And how are we going to know what he's like if someone doesn't tell us? Of course, the source to which we can go, the, the only source, the only reliable source that we can go to to find out about Jesus Christ is his word. It's the Bible. The Bible is a book that was inspired by Jesus Christ. It is his word. It was written for and about him. Notice in John 5 verse 39, Jesus said, to some of the Jews of his day, he said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. These are they which testify of me. The scriptures testify of Jesus Christ. Part of the reason, perhaps one of the biggest reasons that the scriptures were written, was to tell us about Jesus Christ. The name Jesus Christ has a definite and specific meaning. The name Jesus Christ itself is really a brief threefold description of who Jesus Christ is. And there's no way that we can, in one sermon, go through everything that is revealed in Scripture about Jesus Christ. That would take a lifetime of sermons. But we can look at the name Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ, and we can learn a lot about Jesus Christ just from examining his name and what it means. The name Jesus Christ in the Hebrew language from which it's ultimately derived, even though the Greek form or the English form to us is more familiar. But the name of Jesus Christ in Hebrew is Yehoshua Mashiach. And the literal meaning of that name is eternal Savior King or eternal Savior Anointed One, which implies King as we will see Later on, it actually implies more than just king, but that's part of what it implies. The name Jesus Christ tells us that Jesus Christ is eternal, that he is a savior, and that he is a king. That's what the name means. The first part of the name, Yehoshua, is a contraction of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which means the ever-living one or the eternal one. And it is, one, it is a primary name of God used in the Hebrew Scriptures. The second part of the name is from a Hebrew word that means Savior. And the third part of the name is from a Hebrew word, Mashiach, which means the same as the anglicized word Messiah, the word Messiah is an anglicized form of Mashiach, which means anointed one. And the anointed one is an idea associated with the name of Jesus Christ, which indicates the fact 
that he is anointed of God as a king or a priest. You might recall reading the Old Testament that when there were a number of occasions when a king was chosen, that he was anointed to his office. When Saul, for example, was chosen to be the king of Israel, then God told Samuel to go anoint him to that office. He was ordained, he was anointed, and set apart to fill that office in Israel. The same thing happened to David later on. And other kings in a similar way were anointed. And also, when Aaron was chosen to be the high priest, he was anointed to that office. Other priests were anointed as well. In Jesus Christ, the office of king and priest is combined because Jesus Christ is both a king and a priest. In most cases, in in the system that God, the system of government that God established in Israel, the kings and priests were separate offices. But in Jesus Christ, those offices are are united. The office of high priest and king, as we will explore a little bit more in a moment here. Let's take a little closer look at these various aspects of the name Jesus Christ as they're amplified in the Bible and see what they can tell us about who Jesus Christ is. And as I said, there's a lot more than we will be able to discuss in this brief sermon today about Jesus Christ, but at least we can begin to get a concept, perhaps a little more concrete concept of what Jesus Christ means when we use the term Jesus Christ. What is it? Who is it we're talking about? First of all, Jesus Christ is the eternal. He is the eternal, ever-living God. He is the one to whom the name Yahweh, the eternal one, the covenant God of Israel, often refers to in the Old Testament. In most cases, that name is used when it is used in the Old Testament directly of Jesus Christ. Now it could in some cases refer to the Father as well, but often it refers to the person that we know as Jesus Christ. The one who was further revealed in the New Testament as he was born into a fleshly existence and revealed more about himself and the Father and God's nature. In John 8 and verse 58, Jesus Christ said, Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus Christ's life did not begin when he was born of Mary, who was a virgin at the time that he was born. He was supernaturally conceived, and that was not when his life began because he is eternal he is the eternal God and he said before Abraham was I am the use of this term I am implies the fact that he is self-existing that he is eternal you could say instead of I am you could say I exist which is essentially the same thing but Jesus Christ has always existed there's never there's never been any point in time when Jesus Christ did not exist in fact if you conceive of time as as being measured by the motions of the heavenly sphere the universe the sun, the moon, the stars, and so forth, Jesus Christ, in a, in a sense, predates time. Depends, of course, exactly how you conceive of time, but God is eternal. He is ever-living. He is self-existent. And Jesus Christ is a part of that Godhead who is a self-existing person. Now, 
The same person that said to the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am, had called himself by that very same name, I am, when he had spoken to Moses some 1,500 years before that time. He told Moses to tell the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. I am. I am the one who exists, has sent me, Moses, to you. In Exodus 3 and verse 14, the Hebrew word used of God in that context is of the same root as Yahweh, the eternal. And he said to Moses at that time, when he was sending Moses to the people of Israel, he said to Moses, Yahweh is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So the name of Jesus Christ was to be the eternal, one of his names at least. God actually has a number of names and titles, but this is one of the primary ones. And some people get the idea that that you can only use one name of God and it has to be pronounced a certain way, even though nobody actually today knows exactly how Yahweh was pronounced in ancient Hebrew. But that's not really the point anyway. What, what is important is what the name means. And the name means that God is eternal that, and that he is to exist forever. That name is incorporated into the name Jesus Christ, which is the full covenant name of the God of Israel. Yahweh is often spoken of as the covenant name of God because it, it is used often in connection with covenants that God made with at various times with human beings, such as the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, covenant with the people of Israel, and so forth. But as the eternal God, Jesus Christ existed before anything and everything and everyone else. Jesus Christ took a leading role in the creation, the physical creation. In fact, it was done through him, as it says in Colossians chapter 1, and verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So when you think of Jesus Christ, do you think of the one who created the universe? The one who created the earth, who created the heavens, who created the, the stars, the sun and the moon. The one who created the angelic host. You should because that's who he is. It says he is before th uh, all things and in him all things consist. He sustains his creation. It is through his power that everything physical exists. Also in Hebrews 1 and verse 1 says God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. Before Jesus Christ created the universe, he and the Father had established a plan, a master plan for creation, for creating for themselves a family through which they could share their lives their lives of sublime joy and peace with a great family which they would procreate, which they would produce. Yes, God has the power to reproduce himself. And he established a plan and a purpose 
to do it through the creation of a physical universe and physical human beings made out of flesh and blood. And all of that was planned out and mapped out from before the time the creation actually came into existence, the physical creation. In Hebrews 11 and verse 3, Hebrews 11 verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Notice it says that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The worlds here is from the, the word ion, which means age, and a better translation would perhaps be that the ages were framed or laid out from start to finish as one might plan a, let's say, a building project. If you're going to build a building, generally speaking, you draw up plans, you get everything laid out according to a plan before you start building. And that's precisely what God the Father and Jesus Christ did in terms of their creation. Their creation, which is actually an ongoing creation, it's not completed yet, it has a time element. And that's why this term is used that implies ages. It is a, it is a plan which is being worked out through a succession of ages. Ages which were laid out, framed by the word of God. And the things which we see, the things which we can see, the things which are visible are made of things which are not visible. That's what the Bible says, and that's absolutely true, as has been confirmed by even by scientific discovery, that matter and energy are interchangeable, that energy can become matter. Energy which you can't see can become matter which you can see. As the eternal God, Jesus Christ, not only performed the initial physical creation, but he is also actively carrying out his and his father's entire plan from start to finish. Revelation 1 verse 8, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, that's what the term Alpha and Omega implies, the Alpha is the first letter of the, the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And sometimes the alphabet or, or, or a circle was drawn where the Alpha and the Omega were joined, and that implied eternity or infinity. And that's what Jesus Christ is saying in this statement where he said, I am the Alpha and Omega. He's essentially saying, I am ever-living, I am the eternal one. And he said, I'm the beginning and the end. He's the one who began the creation. He's the one who will complete it, who will bring it to its full realization. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus Christ is Almighty. Many people, when they think of Jesus Christ, they think of an emaciated weakling hanging on a cross. And that's about as far as their thought process goes and how they conceive of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is the ever-living one. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the one who is behind the entire creation. And he is the Almighty. He is, he's not a weakling. He's not limited. He is all-powerful. And he is accomplishing the purpose which he and his father have had in mind from the beginning of time, even from even before the beginning of time, if you consider time to have begun with the, with the universe itself, which I guess could be debated philosophically, but 
Nevertheless, Christ has always been in existence and he is accomplishing his purpose. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's not only accomplishing the purpose on a grand scale, but he also accomplishes that purpose working in and through individuals. We're told that he is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. He is the one through whom our faith originates. There were, no, no one would have godly faith if it were not for Jesus Christ. Now, to a degree, we, we determine how much faith we're going to exhibit or exercise, but none of us would have any faith at all except for the fact that it is a gift that's made available to us through Jesus Christ. And he can empower us to fulfill what he has begun to do in and through us. Now again, we're free moral agents. We have, we have our own choices to make. But Jesus Christ is prepared to see us through to the end in terms of how we will turn out in terms of salvation spiritually. And if we are determined to remain faithful, then Jesus Christ will give us the strength and the power and the help that we need to do that. We don't have to do it by ourselves. We couldn't do it by ourselves. We can rely on Jesus Christ for his help in fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. And we were all created for the purpose of becoming part of his family. Jesus Christ is going to finish that work of spiritual creation. The Father and Jesus Christ are going to have their family and they will bring that plan to fruition. And ultimately the earth and the universe will be filled with the family of God. We read in Isaiah 46 and verse 9 about the creative power of Jesus Christ in Isaiah 46 and verse 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times of things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Here's a statement that God has the power to accomplish what he has set out to accomplish. And he intends to do that. He will do that. He is doing that. We could learn much more about Jesus Christ by dwelling on the eternal aspect of his existence and what that implies. It has a lot to do with his nature and his character. But as I said, this is a subject which is virtually inexhaustible it would be a good idea if we would focus on this at times, perhaps a lot of the time when we're studying the scriptures, we're reading the scriptures, thinking about the nature of this person that is revealed in the Bible, Jesus Christ, as well as, of course, God the Father too, which, as Christ said, if we've seen him, we've seen the Father because Jesus Christ and the Father are alike. They share the same character, the same nature. And by learning about Jesus Christ, we're also learning about the Father. And the Bible is full of information, detailed information about Christ and his way of doing things, how he approaches various situations, that which reflect his nature and his mind. But for now, let's move on to the second feature of Jesus Christ's name. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul wrote, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. 
Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now notice what Paul is saying here. He is saying that we should not just be concerned with ourselves, but that we should look out for the interests of others. That we should be just as concerned as this is just another way of expressing the, the great commandment that says love others as you love yourself. We need to be as concerned about the welfare and the well-being of other people as we are ourselves. And it says that this mind is the mind of Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he was God. That's what it's saying but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, Jesus Christ, although he was God, he was an eternal divine being. Miraculously, he became a human being with all the limitations and weaknesses that human beings have. He became, in some miraculous way, a human cell in the womb of Mary, united with, evidently, a an egg cell from her womb, which conceived a human being. And he did that, that he might humble himself and perform a service for his Father and for all mankind as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. Now you might think about that and the significance of that and what that implies in terms of the limits to which God was willing to go to work out and accomplish his purpose through human beings. And also what it what it tells us about God's character. A chief aspect of Christ's character is an attitude of humility, of concern and sincere compassion for other people, a spirit of service toward others. God did not have to create us and give us a chance to share in his glorious destiny. Jesus Christ did not have to empty himself of his divine power and glory and become a mere human being, but he did it because he wanted to. Because he is a God of love and outgoing concern, because this was a way of expressing his divine love most powerfully. How could you conceive of any more powerful way to conceive, to, to demonstrate and exhibit love, compassion, humility, and a willingness to serve. How, how could there be any greater example than what Jesus Christ did and what God the Father did in, in allowing him or the two actually planning and purposing for, for him to do that? It tells us that God has a mind that is characterized by a spirit of giving and of sharing, a spirit of compassion and humility, concern for others. But Jesus Christ is not the weakling and the individual that many conceive of who would never judge anyone, would never castigate anyone, would accept us just as we are and not require anything of us. That's not the kind of God that Jesus Christ is. But Jesus Christ is a God who is compassionate and merciful, who understands our nature because he shared our nature. You know, not, not to mention the fact that he created us to begin with. But he has both the will and the power to be our Savior. He wants to be our Savior. He wants to save us. 
he wants to do it on his terms, not ours, but he does want to save us. And throughout the Bible, Jesus Christ is pictured as a savior of his people. He saved Noah and his family from destruction. And he did it because Noah was a just man before him. He saved Israel. He saved the nation of Israel, leading them out of Egypt and through the wilderness and into a land of milk and honey. He didn't do it necessarily because the people of Israel were righteous. He did it because he had made a promise to their father Abraham because Abraham was righteous and because God had a purpose to be accomplished and worked out through Israel at that time and still has that purpose in mind today. God saved his prophets, people such as Elijah and Daniel from the wrath of the wicked. Now, he hasn't saved everybody in similar circumstances. There are people who have been allowed to die through persecution, and many of the prophets were martyred and murdered, just as the early apostles. Many Christians have been down through the ages. But there are times when God has also intervened to step in and save people in dire circumstances to show that he is our savior time and again god has brought salvation to those who were seemingly doomed in isaiah 43 and verse 1 we read in the bible prophecies about how god is displeased with israel how god is going to bring israel after having abundantly blessed Israel as he did in ancient times and yet he saw Israel continually rebel against him reject his laws kill his prophets and so forth finally he sold them into captivity but there is also in the Bible described a latter day captivity for the people of Israel and we read about that in Isaiah 43 and verse 1 it says now thus says the Lord who created you O Jacob, or Israel, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by, by your name. You are mine. Now notice how Jesus Christ here is speaking to the people of Israel. He speaks of them as their, he speaks to them as their redeemer. And he says, I've called you by your name. You are mine, he says. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring you, or I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. Now, this is talking about when God has humbled Israel and brought them through a necessary period of punishment for their own good. But then he will turn his hand to deliver them, to save them from utter destruction. This is what this is talking about here. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him, yes, I have made him. God made Israel. He brought the people of Israel into existence for a specific purpose. For his glory, to glorify him. And 
he speaks of them very fondly. A number of places in the Bible, including this section of Scripture here. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring them out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say, it is truth. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me today. Many people who are Israelites believe that human beings evolved from slime in a pool of water somewhere or from shrews or apes or whatever. They don't understand, they don't believe that God formed and made them. But when God has delivered them out of their captivity, they're going to know that he's God. And they're going to testify to that fact to the nations. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. If God doesn't step in and save Israel, they're not going to be saved. But he is their Savior. And he will do it, he said. He promises that. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am he. And there is not one who can deliver out of my hand. I work and who will reverse it? Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Notice how many times God refers to himself through this passage of Scripture as a Redeemer and a Savior. I am the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army, and the, they shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished, they are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, and jackals and the ostriches, because... I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give to drink to my people, my chosen. Yes, there are going to be multiple miracles performed as God brings the people of Israel out of their captivity and saves them. As people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me. Oh, Israel, notice that God is going to do all these things for the people of Israel, even though he says, you have not called on me, Jacob, and you have been weary of me. But he says in verse 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. When we think of Jesus Christ, we need to think, of Jesus Christ as a Savior, a mighty Savior, an all-powerful Savior, out of whose hand no one can snatch us once he sets his hand to redeem us. In Isaiah 45 and verse 15, Isaiah 45 and verse 15, Truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Notice how, again, the one who is God, Jesus Christ, is referred to as Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together. 
who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. In other words, they will be for a while, but that will be uh, for only a, a limited period of time. For that says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Yes, God does not tell us to seek him in vain. If, if we want to find God, he's there to be found. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together. You who have escaped from the nations. Again, this is talking about Israel coming out of captivity. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God who cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared from the ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There's none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. God is not just a Savior to Israel. God said, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. God tells us over and over again throughout the scriptures that he is our Savior and that he is prepared to grant us salvation if we will look to him in the proper way for it. In the ultimate act of supreme sacrifice, the very same God who spoke these words that we've read, who will redeem Israel with his mighty power, gave up his life so that we might be reconciled to God through his sacrifice, through his death. Again, this is something we ought to consider and think about. When we think about Jesus Christ, we ought to think about these facts that are revealed in the scriptures about Christ and what they imply about his character and his nature, his love toward mankind, his love for us as individuals. The one who is the eternal, the self-existing creator of all life gave up his own life and his life was snuffed out so that we might have the opportunity for salvation. He died, and he was dead for three days, three nights, and then he was resurrected from the dead and was the firstborn from the dead, of which there will be many others to follow. We can reflect on the love, the deep concern, the absolute unselfishness that Christ's act of sacrificing himself implies. In Romans 5 and verse 6, it says, When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice it says he died for the ungodly. It doesn't say he died for the godly, for the ungodly. He died for us because we needed redemption, because we were, as it says, ungodly. We were lacking in righteousness. We were sinners. We were condemned by our sins. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Through his death, he is our eternal redeemer and savior in a spiritual sense. He has redeemed us from the penalty of our sins as we repent and turn to him and seek to overcome. Now, again, there's much more that could be 
dwelt on or discussed about salvation, of course, many facets to it. But we're hitting some of the high points here about Jesus Christ, trying to get an overall concept of who it is that Jesus Christ is from the point of view of what his name, Jesus Christ, what it tells us about his character, his personality, and who he is as it's elaborated on in the scriptures. The day is now approaching, and it's not far off, when the greatest political revolution in world history will occur. All of the governments on the earth shall be simultaneously overthrown, and they will all be replaced by one world-ruling government. And the head of that government shall be Jesus Christ, who is, we are told in Scripture, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Revelation 11 and verse 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Daniel 7 and verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth and he is going to establish his kingdom ruling over the entire world and it is going to last forever. In Hebrews 1, but 1 and verse 8, To the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Remember that the name Christ is from a Greek word which means anointed, Christus, and it is simply the Greek version of Mashiach, which means anointed, and Jesus Christ means or refers to the fact here that Jesus Christ has been anointed as a king. As it says here, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. In other words, he is over all others. There is no one who will have authority over Christ other than the Father himself. He will be ruling over everyone else. In Psalm 97, it says, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the multitudes be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Now, how different that is from the rulers in today's world where anything but righteousness and justice are at the foundation of our governments. The fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Jesus Christ is coming back in power and glory and might and he's going to judge the world in righteousness. He's going to redeem those who are being oppressed and he is going to punish the wicked and the earth is going to see God. We were, we were reading scriptures a moment ago about how there's going to be no doubt about God once he has redeemed Israel. 
There there won't be any atheists then or agnostics or people who think that human beings evolved from monkeys because everybody's going to know there's a God and they're going to know who that God is and the earth is going to see God. In Psalm 98, verse 6, with trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord the King, let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills be joined together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness, he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. The kingdom of God is characterized in many places in the Bible as in these scriptures that we've read. It will be a kingdom of righteousness where the truth, where what is right prevails. It will be a kingdom of peace, safety, and security for people. It will be a kingdom where people will not be in fear of criminals or rapists or murderers or gangs or crooked politicians will be a kingdom of joy because people will be able to live their lives in peace and safety without all the fears and the trepidation that people suffer from in this world. It's a kingdom in which all people will be encouraged and allowed to reach their maximum potential. God is going to give people the opportunity to reach the fulfillment in the ultimate of happiness in their own lives. He's not going to do it for them, but he's going to give them the instruction, the guidance, the tools, the environment necessary where they can reach their maximum degree of fulfillment and happiness. We also read in Scripture that not only is Jesus Christ anointed as a ruler, as the king of kings, he is also anointed as our high priest. In Hebrews 4 and verse 14, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need to regard Jesus Christ not only as a great king and ruler, but also as our high priest and a merciful one through whom we can go to God and seek the help that we need to overcome our fleshly nature, to be forgiven of our sins, to receive the help that we need with whatever problems we're facing. He is our high priest. Not only is he a high priest, but also the the anointing reflects on the fact that he is also an apostle. In fact, he is the apostle, the chief apostle of the church, as we read in Hebrews 3 and verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Notice here that he is referred to as the apostle. Jesus Christ is the apostle of the church. He is the chief apostle and high priest of our confession who is faithful to him, who appointed him as Moses was, faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house is more honored than the house. Jesus Christ is the one building his house. He is the apostle. He is the one who has gone forth with this message and sent it out to the world, the message of the gospel. Now, He did appoint some other apostles too to be his agents in doing that job. Not only apostles, but other ministers that were sent out to preach the gospel. But Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is its apostle. 
and leading minister, you might say. Far from being an emaciated weakling, as he is often thought of or pictured, Jesus Christ is the kind of man and the kind of God that we can respect. One we can look up to and identify with and emulate, if we will. Yes, we can emulate Christ. We can, we can and should learn to be like Christ, especially like Him in the way that He thinks, in terms of His character, His righteousness, His faith, His obedience to the Father, His lack of hypocrisy and His genuineness and honesty and truthfulness. There are many, many lessons we can learn from Christ, many facets of his example that we can follow to make our, li- our own lives better, more meaningful, more fruitful. But for that to happen, we have to get to know him better. And the way that we can do that is spend as much time with him as we can. I know we all have other things that we have to do besides just study the Bible all the time, and that wouldn't necessarily be the best thing. Not that it would be wrong to do that, but but uh, that's not the way life works. We have various responsibilities that we have to take care of. But we should take the time to study the Scriptures with the purpose in mind of getting to know God better. Getting to know Jesus Christ better because if we're going to be Christians, we need to... Follow Christ's example, and we have to know what that example is to follow it. We have to know this person that we have been joined to as one body and one flesh. And if we do that, our lives will be happier. They will be richer. We will become more like him. And we will be able to accomplish the purpose for which he created us. We will be able to be in his kingdom.